0: Well, if you'll turn with me to the book of Second Peter this morning, Second Peter. Chapter three, the very end of the book. last five verses, starting in verse 14. "Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace." And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would guide us as we look at this word this morning. Pray that you would fill me with your spirit. May the words that I speak be words of truth, words that bring blessing and life. Uh, May your spirit... Bring conviction where necessary, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name in all things. Lord, we give you thanks and praise, and we pray pray this for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Why, Why do we say that? Why do we say that when someone sneezes? Or what about saying, excuse me, when you bump into somebody? What about a host of other things? Why do we do all these? Well, in a sense, we've learned them. We've been taught them. We are, in a sense, catechized into them as a people in our culture. And to catechize is to systematically instruct someone, particularly by questions and answers, but also through explanation and and corrections, which I know we have all experienced in our lifetime. Uh, We've We've had it as kids, we've had it as adults, we've done it with our kids. We're constantly being catechized or catechizing someone else. In fact, the world around us is constantly engaged in this. And when I say world, I, I, I really mean world. Nearly everything, culture, politics, business, entertainment, they are all seeking to conform us into their image, into the image that they desire. And I would argue that the image that they are seeking to mold us into is not always, and actually, probably rarely, the image we are called to be conformed to as believers. And the platforms, the the delivery systems of the world are ubiquitous. Television, movies, music, media, social media, podcasts, the education system, and much more. Now not all of these are bad but they do provide a conduit through which to bring about change, to mold us, to reflect the current sensibilities. And unless we become hermits and shut ourselves off completely, that shaping influence is going to be there in our lives. Whether we know it or not, we are being catechized and instructed by what we see and hear. And this reality is affecting the church. We may not see it in in drastic, fractured ways within this local church, but in the evangelical church in America and beyond, it's certainly a problem, and it's a significant factor. In a recent article in The Atlantic, Peter Wehner wrote about the evangelical church being torn apart. Now, I don't agree with all that he wrote, but one comment by James Ernest, who's the vice president and editor-in-chief at Erdman's, I thought was quite insightful, And Ernest said this about the fracturing of the church. He said, what we're seeing is a massive discipleship failure caused by massive catechesis failure. The evangelical church in the U.S. over the last five decades, I might say it's longer, has failed to form its adherents into disciples. So there is great hollowness. And folks, I think that hollowness is being revealed more and more in our current day and age. And I, I want to trust that this revelation of this holiness is actually going to work out for good because maybe it will wake the church up, wake us all up to the call that is placed upon us, upon the church, and upon each and every believer in Christ. Because the question I have for us all is, are we becoming disciples of Christ? Are we becoming disciples? In Matthew 28, after the resurrection, Jesus gave a charge to his disciples. Starting in verse 18, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." the command in there the controlling verb is make disciples and it's within this context of a glorious promise isn't it that the lord himself will be with his people always to the very end of the age and this command govern the disciples and so you see the reality of that command as you read through the new testament you see that reality and in peter's second letter what we read from just a few moments ago his passion, his burden in many ways, is that his readers would grow, that they would grow to become greater disciples more and more like Christ. And as you read the whole letter, you see him remind the recipients of what they have been given in Christ. This is what you have. But he also tells them of what is in the world and is sadly creeping into the church in many ways, and of their call to grow in conformity to Christ, their call to be disciples. He charges them to make every effort, to be diligent in that endeavor. Now this morning, this is the reminder I want to look at, it, Peter's charge. And in it, I believe we will see the warning about the danger that lurks, the danger that is real, but also the duty, and I would say, and, and I think it's probably even better to put, is the privilege of all believers in Christ to be disciples, to grow in Christ, As we're in this series on the church and on learning to re-engage in the life of the church, discipleship is essential to that. And so my prayer is that we will see that nature, the importance of this, and that the the Spirit will work in each of us to, to spur us on in that endeavor, that He'll change us even this morning, but that He'll change us in a way that our trajectory, that our direction moves more and more in the way of discipleship, in the way of Christ. So, in these verses that we have before us, I'm not going to deal with every aspect we find in them. I can't do that. I can't go through and, and deal with all of 2 Peter at this point, but I want to focus on how they speak to discipleship. So, look down at the second half of verse 16. We pick up with there. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Now, it starts off with uh, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. The the place where those things are hard to understand, Peter says, are Paul's letters. Uh, Some of Paul's letters, which Peter equates with the rest of Scripture, which I think is beautiful to see him putting Paul's letters on the same level as the Scriptures. But his charge for them is to take care which that could also be translated as be on your guard. Be on your guard. He's telling them to be on their guard against error. And earlier in the letter, Peter warned against the false prophets and false teachers. The very beginning of chapter 2, he wrote this. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying, denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. There will be people who will bring in destructive heresies, heresies to the point that even deny Christ, Now, I will say this, that danger was not limited to Peter's day. The church has dealt with destructive heresies from its inception, and it will continue to do so until Christ returns. And looking back at verse 16, Peter is asserting that this false teaching can arise as the result of twisting Scripture by those who are ignorant and unstable. Now, folks, ignorant here insinuates that these people are incompetent at interpretation, okay, that they're incompetent. It doesn't have to imply that they are devious in it, that there's any evil intent, just that they're simply incompetent. They don't have the skills. They don't have the, the, the ability to do this. They may be sincere, but yet, folks, they're sincerely wrong. Sincerity doesn't always matter. And they're also unstable. They they simply do not have strong roots. They are unsteady people. So they are ignorant and unstable. And So I want you to hear this because an implication of this is that not all false teaching comes into the church through evil scheming, but it comes through people who aren't grounded in the truth. And folks, that should humble us. And it should cause us to assess our own lives because we may well teach error without intending to do so. And that error can often take hold. And that's a daunting thought for me as a person who stands up here nearly every single week to teach. It's a weighty responsibility. But it should also be sobering for every single one of us, particularly parents who have to answer the myriad questions of why, 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 and, you know, can God do this, can God do that, all those questions that you didn't think a three-year-old could have, but they do. And so my question is, are you grounded in God's Word so that you're able to answer them rightly? I think the charge that Paul gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he wrote, said this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best. Take care. Be on your guard to be one who's not ashamed, to be one who rightly handles the word of truth. Now, from that, folks, I think we also have to be aware of some of the false teachings that do infiltrate the church. Whether through gullibility or through guile, they are there. So, I want to briefly highlight a few of the more prominent twisted teachings, the twistings of Scripture, which the church encounters, and too often, many people within the church fall prey to. Okay, I I know places where you know, pastors preach faithfully, and the people in the pews are reading and listening to stuff that is just not helpful. Now, one of these is moralism. Typically, in a moralistic teaching, in a, in a church that teaches that, or in a book that you read, it, it's not one that is an out and out denial of the gospel. The gospel is heard. Sinners are called to repentance and trust in, for, uh, trust in Christ for forgiveness of their sins, to receive eternal life. However, once that's done, after the gospel is preached, it's often neglected completely. And what you hear taught after that is what Brian Chapel calls the deadly bees, B's, B apostrophe S. Be like, be good, and be disciplined. Okay? Now, what chapel would say is that these messages are not wrong in themselves, so it's not wrong to say, be like Christ. It's wrong by itself. If we are just told, be like Christ, be like Christ, be like Christ, or be good, or be good, or be disciplined, be disciplined, and that's all you hear, that's an unbelievable weight that we cannot bear, and it is completely and utterly gospelless message that simply says be good is anti-gospel. The gospel tells us you can't be good. That's why we have it. You can't live the gospel, folks. You can live in light of it because the gospel is a proclamation to us of what Christ has done for us. We can't be good on our own. It is absolutely true that we are called to pursue righteousness but we must know that we can only do that because of the gospel and only do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, in moralism, oftentimes our performance is mixed up with the gospel. It's confused for the gospel. And the inevitable result of this is that we will either become people that are utterly proud or utterly despairing. Because we think we did it, we're better than everybody else we know, or we look at everybody else and We're like, we're pathetic, and we crawl up in a fetal position. And you know, moralism will often slide into this quid pro quo type of transaction, where if we are good enough, God's going to bless us. And then we get what is so often found on TV stations, the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's that those who live right and think right thoughts about God, God will then bless you immensely. You can speak into existence what you want, as long as you don't think any negative thoughts. Now, does God give us good things? Yes, James says every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, but is everything we want necessarily a good gift? No, it's not. God knows better than us. See, our hearts are often deceitful, but moralism will often lead to legalism as well. Sean Lucas Wrote this. He said, Legalism and moralism are related to each other, but where moralism a- affirms its exchange with God in and, and these broad terms, morality for blessing, legalism has a very specific, though just as unbiblical, understanding of the kind of obedience that God demands and blesses. In our own day, legalism may look like very specific extra scriptural ways of honoring the Lord's day. It may look like particular dating practices. It may look like a particular approach toward popular culture that confuses familial preferences with biblical mandate. At bottom, however, legalism is a kind of moralism that suggests the gospel teaches that we ultimately earn favor with God by what we do. And folks, people get to these kind of ideas because they read one part of Scripture and don't understand context and don't understand the grand scheme of Scripture, They're unstable, ignorant, and unsteady, and they twist the Scriptures. And so legalism and moralism both have at root this thought, when I obey, I'm blessed or I'm accepted. Whereas the gospel proclaims that we are accepted, we are declared righteous in Christ. And because of that, we long to obey our Lord and Savior who gave himself for us. So then, there's also the flip side of legalism, and that's a big word called antinomianism. Namas means law, so anti-law. It's a denial of the necessity of the law. It's a de-emphasis on obedience or effort. It often takes grace and turns grace into license to sin, and this, it moves away from the numerous imperatives in Scripture and the need to make every effort. See, because the truth is we are freely justified in Christ by grace alone through faith alone. We're made with right, right with God through that, but that gift is to lead us to live rightly, to act, to labor. True repentance means turning away from sin and pursuing righteousness. Folks, those are some of the major false teachings that you can see everywhere, and if you're discerning, you can hear everywhere. And they plague the church, and they plague believers Now, there are certainly other heretical teachings that are are much bigger, a twisting of Scripture, things of denying the Trinity or denying the virgin birth of Christ, and it's not in my purview right now to go through all of those. If you have questions, ask me. Feel free. But I do want to assess and address dangers that aren't necessarily from within the church, but that come from without the church, because in our day and age, these are getting stronger. And one of those, really the overarching one, is this term syncretism. Syncretism. This is a combination of beliefs that are actually different from one another. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets railed against the syncretism of Israel. I was actually reading yesterday morning 2 Kings, and this verse came up in in 2 Kings 17, verse 33. And so this is speaking of the people of God who came back from Assyria. They were resettled in the land. And it said, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. They proclaimed to fear God, to be God-fearing people, to be Israelites, but yet they served other gods. When you, when you read in the Old Testament about, but the high places were not removed or they sacrifice to Molech, or to Baal, or anything else. It's syncretism. They're bringing together multiple things. They say, yeah, no, we're still believers in God, but we're just going to add all these other things because they seem to be doing pretty well. It's a hedging of the bets in some sense. It's trying to get on the right side of culture, which doesn't that sound a little too familiar today? Because today the church is doing this when we adopt the secular religion that culture promotes. On one end of the spectrum, there's LGBTQ plus ideology that tries to reconcile and affirm that whole lifestyle by Scripture, or just out and out deny Scripture and say we must affirm everything. Now, folks, we cannot do that. We must absolutely love people. We must share the gospel, but we cannot change our beliefs for the sake of culture. The Word of God is foundational, not our culture that changes with whim and fancy. This can happen on the other side of the spectrum as well. Lately, there's been a great deal of talk about Christian nationalism. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a patriot at all, loving your country, but Christian nationalism is a confusion of America as God's chosen people and God's nation, Folks, that's really, really dangerous. It's really dangerous, and that's going to lead to a whole host of other issues. It's not only dangerous, but it's utterly foolish, and it comes from ignorance and instability in the Scriptures, and it's a twisting. And there are a lot more bad examples I can give, but I don't want to just totally bum us out of what is messed up Okay, the point is, though, we fall prey to these teachings because we're not careful, because we're not on our guard. But to be careful and to be on our guard, we've got to have a solid grounding in our lives, don't we? And that leads us to our duty or our privilege as believers. You see it very clearly in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, what the believers were waiting for, these these things that they're waiting for, was the day of the Lord. They're waiting for God to return and set everything right. But until that happens, we are still called to be diligent, to, to make every effort to pursue Him, to pursue righteousness, In chapter one, Peter lays out the the truth that as believers, we've been given everything we need in Christ. I love the first probably 10 to 15 verses of chapter one. It's amazing as you read through 2 Peter. He says that we've been given everything, and then we are to grow in faith and in virtue and in knowledge and in self control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and in love. We're to grow in those things. And then he writes, verse eight of chapter one For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that basically say it's going to help make you stable, so you're not going to twist Scripture? He says, "'For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election.'" For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. By the grace of God, I am what I am, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You know, and I labor with all His strength. It's by His grace, but I labor. And that's what it's saying here is practice these qualities. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. And if you do so, what a promise, you will never fall wow. You'll not fall prey to these false teachings. So then, folks, what does it mean to be diligent? It means to take pains, to do what it takes. I think of these Olympic athletes when you think of diligence You know, they train for years and years. They don't touch a donut. They don't touch anything with sugar. They get up at four in the morning and swim for three hours. Then they run, and then they swim more, and on and on, and they're consuming calorie upon calorie, but none of it's bad. They deny themselves. They're diligent because they have a goal. They're pressing on to the prize for a little medal that hangs around their neck. And we're not diligent enough to press on towards the prize of heaven that He's called us towards. We won't deny ourselves a Netflix binge of some show that's no good. I mean, are we diligent? It means to be especially conscientious in in discharging an obligation. There's an eagerness to do this. In Hebrews 4.11, we read, Let us therefore strive, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. As one commentator stated, the appropriate lifestyle of a follower of Jesus does not just happen. It requires effort, especially since the forces of the surrounding culture will attempt to make apprentices of Jesus adjust their behavior back to that of maturity culture. Absolutely. Isn't that happening all the time? So then, what are we to be diligent in? If we look back at verse 14, it's to be diligent, to be found in Him without spot or blemish. Now, ultimately, we will be found this way because Christ is working to present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5 or Jude 24 However, we are nonetheless, because of that, we are nonetheless to labor to be spotless, to be the opposite of how the false teachers are described in 2 Peter 2, verse 13, where it says, They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. You, as a believer in Christ, are to be without spot or blemish. Don't be like the blots and blemishes. We're to pursue holiness. And folks, then I want you to to think about this. Consider how pursuing the life of holiness actually helps us live a life of peace. Now, we have peace with God because of Christ. We have positional peace. Look at Romans 5, 1 and 2, and that we are no longer at war with God. We are not objects of wrath as people who are in Christ. However, our conditional peace is is affected by our pursuit of holiness. We all know that the guilty conscience is not a peaceful conscience. But yet Peter furthers this call, this duty, and tells his readers to take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability," in verse 17. We must know truth in order to reject error. And folks, if we are not resolved to do this and to pursue truth, we will lose our stability. In some way, we very likely will lose our stability. It will reveal in us our unstable footing, and so we must be careful. We cannot blindly accept everything we hear from someone just because they use the label Christian. If if there were a Borders bookstore still and you went to the religious Christian section, In general, I'd say don't ever buy anything in it, because most of it is not very good. You have to be discerning. We have to be careful. But I also have to say, folks, we will not be discerning. We will not be able to be discerning if verse 18 isn't true. I love verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, that verse, I think, forms kind of a a bookend with chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, hopefully you can see the connection. You you see the the repeated words, grace and knowledge. Because as I was studying 318, and and I've loved this verse, but I've, I've always been struck by it and stuck on how does one grow in Grace. Have you ever thought about that? How do we grow in something that is given to us? Here, grow in this, whatever it is. Like, that seems rather elusive to me. But 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2, it was helpful for me in seeing the paradigm that I think that the, the lens that Peter uses, because there he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. God and of Jesus our Lord. They are, in a sense, the, the grace and peace are, are multiplied by God in the lives of the believers as they grow in knowledge, as they, they get to know Jesus more. So then the question is, how, how do we grow in grace? Well, I think part of what we do, and I, I don't have this all figured out. This is going to be a labor of a lifetime. We have to to nurture the understanding in our lives that all we have is by grace, That that I wake up in the morning by grace, that the sun rises because of the grace of God holding it together with the very word of His power. have to grow in understanding grace. uh, You know, uh, as Paul grew, you you could see kind of in in his letters, he grew in this understanding of of the gospel. Like, the gospel kind of grew for him. It didn't grow. It didn't get bigger. It grew in his understanding. He saw how much more it was. Just, we, we don't grow. We don't get more of Jesus. We grow in understanding how much Jesus is doing in our lives of what the grace of God for us in Christ really is. His his grace has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. Grace is the foundation of everything, and if we don't understand that we stand by grace, folks, again, we will fall to the twisting of Scripture. So we grow in grace by nurturing the understanding, by by seeing our sinfulness, and seeing the, the love, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases, We have to continue to see how much he's done for us. And then to add to that, we we grow in knowledge, that's part of it. And I would say one of the most gracious gifts we have been given is at our hands and in our fingertips. If you have a smartphone, it's probably on every single one of your screens. The beauty is as ubiquitous, as prevalent as all these other forces trying to change us, we really have that same amount of access to Scripture or greater. There's an app called Redeeming the Time. A super short little app. It says, you know, if you're standing in line, flip on it and go, how much time do you have? Five minutes. And it'll tell you what part of Scripture you can read in five minutes. And it'll keep track of it. You could read through the entire Bible standing in line at the DMV. I mean, just think about all of this. So we grow in knowledge. We grow in Scripture. In Hebrews, I read that we are to strive to enter the rest of God. You know what follows that strive to enter the rest? Verse 12, for the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you want to grow in knowledge of Christ, Scripture, if you want to grow in knowledge of grace, Scripture, because it's, op- it's going to lay us bare before the Lord. The Word of God is not just useful, it's imperative for us. We've been given a, a great gift, God's gracious revelation of Himself to us. We, we have the privilege of getting to know in the pages of Scripture God Himself. I mean, how phenomenal is that? To get to know the God who chose to save a people from sin, from condemnation. To, uh, to, he gave us eternal life, eternal joy in Christ. And there is an, an eternity of knowledge to grow in. And as we do, I will say this, it will render us more and more stable and more and more humble because we will see everything comes through grace. Our roots will go down deep, and we will be the tree firmly planted, not the chaff that is blown away by the wind. Folks, this is not optional in the life of the believer. We must take care we must be diligent. We must grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. One commentator wrote, he said, "'Knowledge of Christ and knowledge about Christ are, if, if they keep pace with one another, both the safeguard against heresy and apostasy and also the means of growth and grace. For the more we know Christ, the more we will invoke His grace.'" the more we know His character, the more we know who He is, the more we will turn to Him and fall upon Him. And the more we know about Christ, the more varied will be the grace we invoke. In each and every situation, Lord, give me the grace as I drive because people around here don't drive well. Please help me. Whatever it may be, we will invoke the grace of God because we know that Christ cares for His people. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grow up in Him in every way possible. Folks, this is discipleship. Being diligent to pursue likeness to Christ all to the glory of God. The church is called to disciple, and people are called to be disciples. So we have to be those people. We have to be the people who pursue the Lord, who are diligent, who are making every effort. The logical question then, as as I close here, is, Are you a disciple? Are you growing in grace and knowledge? Are you pursuing Christ? Folks, take hold of Him. He's got a hold of you. If you are in Christ, He has got a hold of you, and He will never let you go, but take hold. Grab on tight. Strive to know Him more and more. And I want our church to be a place that, that, that aids in that, that, that helps that, that, that fulfills that. Sunday worship is discipleship, but there's other means that exist, small groups, uh, one-on-one times of discipleship, you all getting together in, in other ways and, and talking about Christ, talking about the gospel, youth group, and, and there's more, and I want to help you all grow. If, if, you have, if you're like, I don't really even know where to start with reading Scripture, can you help? please come talk to me. It's one of my favorite things to do, not the talking part, but helping you grow. So this day, folks, examine your life. Ask these questions, and I will say this to parents or grandparents. Know that you are setting an example for your kids or your grandkids. And one way or the other, you are catechizing them. If everything else is more important than Christ and the church, they will know that. So know that you're catechizing them. Be intentional. Last thing this morning, folks, I don't want to leave it in, like, you just have to do this, but this is not just for your protection, it's for your joy. This is absolutely for your joy and for your good. I think at the end, Psalm 16 is one of my favorite psalms, and the last verse, Psalm 1611, says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, folks, it's not just protection and stability that we get as we pursue Christ. It's joy, it's delight in the God of the universe who loved, him, who loved us and gave Himself for us. That's the God we have the privilege of knowing, of loving, of growing in our comprehension of who He is, of growing in His grace it is the privilege we have in understanding that it's in Christ alone that we stand. He is our solid rock, our solid foundation. Let's pursue Him with all our heart. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and Your grace and Your love in our lives. Teach us to pursue You more. grow us in you, that we would stand stable in joy, in peace, without spot or blemish. All to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.